Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin podcast. My name is Matt Brusky, and I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action, and welcome to another week from Wisconsin. Well, we have our budget to talk about this week, and we have our full panel here to get right into it. That means Jorna Taylor is with us. Jorna is a nonprofit consultant here in Wisconsin. Jorna. Good morning. Good to have you, Jorna, on this cold, cold morning. And that means also Robert Craig is with us if we have a full panel. Robert, Executive Director here at Citizen Action. Robert. Good morning, everyone. As we mentioned, uh, we record Thursday mornings. We always talk about that. But uh, on Wednesday evening, I guess 4 o'clock in the afternoon, uh, Governor Walker unveiled his budget. We have been preparing for the unveiling of this budget by talking about uh, the alternative budget that Citizen Action and a number of nonprofits have been involved in for the last month trying to get out front on this process. Last week, I think we even mentioned that Walker had started to leak some of the information about his budget, including changing his position on the cuts to earned income tax credit. Well, this week, Walker made his announcements, and it, it is very obvious he is running for governor. So we're going to talk about how this budget is really, uh, quite frankly, a document about starting to run for governor. And we have a special guest to also help us talk about a key component of uh, his budget, that is his education component, which has gotten a lot of news. And to do that, we have a Citizen Action Organizing Cooperative member who is also very involved with the State Teachers Union and has been working with educators for a long time. That is Beth Ludeman. Beth, we're glad to have you. Morning, everybody. So first of all, I mentioned, Beth, you're an organizing cooperative leader here at Citizen Action. We're really thankful to your leadership and helping get the cooperative off the ground. Well, listen, it's my great pleasure. It's really exciting to see how the co-op has grown. And uh, as one of the co-chairs of the steering committee, uh, it's really quite amazing to see the energy that people have around investing in their communities and making things happen. It's great. It certainly is. And one of the great things is it gives us access to people like yourself who have a great deal of expertise. And so I wanted you on to talk specifically about the news around the $649 million that uh, Governor Walker has added in his budget uh, for education. And uh, obviously, this has got a lot of news. Uh, this is a significant chunk of money. We don't want to uh, dismiss it, but it is obviously still smaller uh, than the significant cuts that have happened to education over the years. Yeah, let's be clear. We want that money. All of our schools desperately need it. But as you suggest, it's really a shortfall compared to all the money that has been taken away from schools in the last five years. You know, we're coming up on the advent of Act 10, um, the anniversary, I mean, mm -hmm. six years ago. And since that time, our schools have really scrambled, some to a great degree more than others, uh, rural and urban schools in particular. And, you know, despite this chunk of money, it's still not enough to fill the, the devastation that's happened. Can you say a little bit more about that? Because uh, he's got headlines all over the place and then regional newspapers saying, local educators thrilled with Walker's increase in education spending. And the fourth estate doesn't seem to be doing the job of explaining he's restoring part of the cuts he's made. And so we're still way behind. And it's certainly not new investments we need uh, to have a 21st century education system in Wisconsin. Right. So, you know, the fact that there have been so many drastic cuts made already, is it close to a billion? I, am, yeah, I believe it's over. Right. Yep. And, you know, so just like when, when people think about their home budgets, right, when you end up not spending for several years on something, 
something and then go to fix it. There are much bigger problems than if it were just a gap of a year or uh, if you were only missing a couple dollars. So I, I think in a real practical sense, people understand that even though this seems like a big chunk of money, the reason people might be seeming like they're very excited is in some ways it is a tiny bit of, of relief that there aren't going to be further cuts. But it doesn't fill the hole. We've got a big a, hole. A little bit of a Stockholm syndrome. Right, where exactly. People are just so amazed he's not doing more damage. Right. That's right. what they come to expect. And it doesn't right? take into account inflation. Thing. So he's running Absolutely. around saying, we're spending more than ever. Well, right. not adjusted. Right. So exactly. It's complete flim flam. That's right. So obviously, I think the thing that's really difficult about this, and Walker got out front on this, he, he, he calls you a cynic. He calls all of us cynics. He says that the cynics are going to say they're just going to talk about the past. This proposal is about looking forward. So I'd like you to specifically respond to that looking forward. But but here's what I would say as opposed to just responding to whether you're a cynic or not. How does one look forward and actually really plan while still really quite functionally attacking teachers, which he has not stopped doing in this in, in this proposal, which I want to talk about more. But you know, get, get your thoughts about how the, the kind of the war on educators plays a role beyond just money. You know, uh, to be honest, and people may not remember this, but from the very beginning, six years ago, uh, what educators primarily said is, listen, it's not the money. We don't care as much about what you might need to do in terms of cutting salaries and benefits, although that's important because people support families, right? It really is the collaboration that districts had to do with the collective bargaining rights that teachers had uh, for all that time because there was a legal imperative for them to sit down at the negotiations table and work over and and work out all kinds of details about uh, working conditions. Uh, you know, we have record numbers of, pe- of teachers and and paraprofessionals leaving schools, leaving public schools now, because the working conditions are so uh, onerous. Um, and some of that has to do with money because there aren't enough resources to ground. But primarily, it's from districts that do not want to truly collaborate and meet and confer, um, despite the fact that the law allows that, right? And that's a big complication because uh, there, isn't, there aren't discussions about class size. There aren't discussions about how many preparations are appropriate for people to have during the course of a school day to prepare best for their students. And it creates a great deal of stress, and people who have been in education either for a short time or a long time say, listen, this is, it's difficult to work with at best, right? Yeah, and here's and I don't know if our listeners this news may be coming out today, but uh, there's a there's a poison pill in 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 this money. Unfortunately, um, Walker has put a really important string uh, to the money, and that is that districts that are not in full compliance with Act 10, particularly as it relates to shifting pension and health insurance costs onto employees, will not be eligible for this money. So we're talking about not only someone who clearly hasn't given up the fight against educators, but now is actually putting the burden of bearing that fight on the kids who will not be eligible for this money, uh, this increased uh, money that he has in his budget. To be clear, uh, Madison is very much uh, out 
according to this. Um, I spoke earlier today with someone over at the MTA, and, and they're looking into this. They're obviously very concerned, but I'm sure there are other districts potentially um, that this could could impact money. But even beyond that, clearly it just shows the intentions, right, that the war is still well, well, still on. Absolutely. And and it will have a chilling effect, uh, I, I would predict, on those districts who have currently been collaborating with uh, uh, their teachers and unions about um, working conditions. Uh, yeah, it's it's hard to for me to predict what kind of effect that's going to have. So thank you so much for joining us, Beth. I think that you and Matt are being a little bit harsh on the poor governor because he clearly is giving a $750 break over 30 years to our administrators and teachers by not requiring them to renew their license every five years. Uh, you know, I mean, I think this is going to be great. It just leads us more and more into the unaccountable school choice system that he's pushing statewide and expanding at every opportunity. So I don't really understand why you don't think he's in it for the teachers and administrators. Well, uh, you bring up a great point, Jorna, and that is of the educators that I talk to who qualify for at least the one portion I'm thinking of with the, with the, if you're 55 and over, you can renew your license on a one-time one only. Only, um, to be able to stay in the schools. I've got to tell you that most of the conversations I have with most of my members are, I, I've got to get out because the stress is too much. There, there aren't very many people I'm talking about who are, um, you know, uh, really excited about that. I have a friend who is a teacher at a local MPS high school, and every day he is just so incredibly frustrated at the burden that he continues to feel with these cuts squeezing him. And he's he's in grad school now, and he's looking to get out within the next year or two. And he's a, you know, 30-some excited, able high school teacher who could really wants to make change and he just can't and he sees the writing on the wall and he doesn't want to support a school choice system and he doesn't want to see what's happening to MPS happen and this is really all the fault of Scott Walker. Jorna, I would think that you were in on a lot of my phone conversations uh, based on that. Yep. So, I mean, there's one element here, just teacher bashing. Uh, teachers are paid less than other professionals with similar educations. Uh, Walker and, and the conservative movement has tried to uh, create resentment. So people who are falling behind, losing good paying jobs to say it's not the fault of the job creators. It's the, it was these public employees that still have health care and pensions, even though they're relatively underpaid, even including that uh, for the education they get. Tony Evers was here for an interview with a state superintendent Monday, and he was telling me on the side that we're losing a generation of teachers because why would someone go into this profession when it's underpaid and it's being scapegoated for problems like poverty, right, where we have to do dramatic things for kids in poverty? And by the way, we're still not doing anything much about lead pipes, so we have more and more kids who are going to be special needs because they're being poisoned uh, by the state. Uh, so you have that problem, right? But then you have this idea that there just isn't much money and we should all be happy that he partially restored his previous cuts. 
I actually think the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel coverage is more on point to this than some of the other I've seen, even the Capital Times, which is interesting. Uh, but you hear you hear Walker already worried about these tax giveaways. He's giving away revenue that could call, we could invest heavily in education and other priorities. So that the manufacturer and agriculture tax credit is now triple what it's supposed to have been, according to their analysis. This giveaway that doesn't require rich people who get it to, to create a single job. They can even outsource jobs. But you hear Walker saying in, in his speech uh, yesterday, now is not the time to raise taxes. We should not raise taxes on farmers and manufacturers. This is, a, this is predicting a huge giveaway. We should not raise the income tax. We should not raise the gas tax. But here's the problem, right? If you have this, we can never raise taxes frame, right? Then you can never make great investments. And if you're going to give away a lot of the revenue, it's even worse. And that's what he's about. Well, there, there's a couple things that, if you, as you've been um, talking about that, Robert, that come to mind for me. One is, uh, right now, we have so many school districts putting up referenda in order to pay for things that are just essential. And so my concern is that uh, folks that are voting on those referenda will now see this amount of money and say, well, okay, we don't, we don't have to do the referenda anymore. Um, and, and that's a great concern because um, I, it's not going to go far enough for all the problems that many of our urban and uh, rural districts face. I'm not suggesting that our suburban districts have it easy, but I think generally speaking, they have an easier time making their budgets than do rural and urban districts because there are just greater costs attached to educating students there. Um, and, and then the other thing, if you don't mind me saying so, is bringing up Superintendent uh, Evers. The, the thing that's very interesting to me is in light of the great rising up, and now I'm going to shift to my organizer hat as part of our co-op, um, I'm very excited to see the groundswell of uh, disdain for our uh, Secretary of Education currently uh, because it gives me hope that people will start paying attention to what that's going to mean to states. It, it, it's very clear that DeVos and, and uh, the President, 45, want to push everything back to states. And if that's the case, we even more need uh, somebody who's going to protect our schools as best they can. Both of the other major contenders uh, in, in the superintendent's race are DeVos supporters um, and, uh, and think that there's nothing problematic about expanding privatization of our schools. And so I really am hoping that people will be paying attention to that race, get out there for the primary on the 21st of February, and make sure that Tony Evers uh, re retains uh, this seat as our uh, superintendent of schools. And let me, one underreported thing here is how inequitable the new spending is, yeah. independent of the Act 10 issue. So right. quoting our good friend and ally, John Peacock, from the Wisconsin Council on Children and Families, the governor has chosen a method of delivering the proposed increase in a way that would move Wisconsin away from its long commitment to providing more assistance to districts with less capacity to boost local property tax support for schools. His approach would not target aid to districts with the highest cost or the students that are struggling to see it succeed academically. The additional amount that schools would get is based solely on the number of students in the district. So I have no doubt, as you pointed out, 
that Nicolet has plenty of revenue problems, Brookfield does, but it doesn't compare to what Beloit is facing or what MPS is facing or what Rhinelander is facing or the rural districts. And eventually this becomes unconstitutional. Courts actually go after funding systems that are inequitable, and he's created a whole new funding stream that is not based on need. And we know that the kids who, who, who have more special needs, uh, grew up in poverty, actually need more spending on them, not less. And we, we're doing the opposite. So, Beth, I was really glad to hear you transition to the forward-looking. We have this very important election, uh, Tony Evers. And uh, our it, as of Friday, when most people listen to this, our board will be taking up the endorsement this Friday. So we will likely have endorsed uh, Tony Evers uh, by this weekend. And we anticipate wanting to help organize and get cooperative members and other uh, podcast listeners and everybody out to help support Tony Evers. We will have more information on that. I do know... Um, the weekend before the election, certainly in Milwaukee. I know we'll be doing stuff with the Milwaukee Teachers, uh, out of the Milwaukee Teachers Education Association around 10 a.m. So want to encourage people to already put that on your calendar uh, before the primary. And that's that's phone canvassing, that's door knocking, all kinds of activity uh, here in Milwaukee. And also in other parts of the state, we are going to be working to uh, organize activities so we can help be involved and make sure we protect public education. Before we leave the budget, uh, just remember, there's a better way we have the a, a Wisconsin budget for all, and we will provide a link to that again. So we had more press events in the Fox Valley in Appleton yesterday, right on the day of Walker's budget release. So we won't delve into that. We've done it in a couple podcasts, but people should take a look at what you could actually do if you closed all of these tax giveaways and invested in our state. So, Beth, we really appreciate you taking the time to come in today. And... Oh, I'm delighted to have been able to join you. Thanks so much for the invite. Okay, great. And thanks again for being a, a leader in the uh, organizing cooperative. See you all out there at, on the doors. Okay, great. So, obviously, while the budget is uh, extraordinarily important, we do want to take some time this week to dive a little bit deeper into redistricting. Uh, we mentioned last week about the lawsuit and that we were going to have Sachin Chetta on to talk, tell us a little bit more about exactly what happened in the lawsuit, where we're at, and what is what it looks like going forward. So with that, we're really uh, glad that Sachin Chetta could join us. Sachin, thank you. Matt, thanks so much. Robert, join us. So glad to be joining you today. So Sachin, just give our listeners a quick update as to where the lawsuit stands, obviously after the big news about two weeks ago now. Great. So uh, we're talking about a lawsuit that's called Whitford v. Gill, and it is a series of Wisconsin plaintiffs that have filed suit to overturn the maps in Wisconsin for being too uh, extremely partisan. Uh, They've uh, successfully gotten a federal court to issue a verdict saying that the map should be overturned and replaced by maps that are more fair. And so what happened most recently is we got an order that put an injunction on the elections board from using these maps that are currently in place, the unfair maps, in any further elections. And we further got an order that new maps have to be drawn by November of this year so that they're in place in time for people to know where they might run and what the districts are going to look like for the 2018 elections. Uh, And so we're looking forward to seeing new maps. At the same time, We've agreed with the state that the Supreme Court appeal that they want to put forward will go forward. In the next uh, six or eight weeks, they'll be filing uh, an appeal. They've uh, hired a very expensive uh, firm 
uh, out of, uh, well, I don't know where they're based, but I think there's folks in Chicago and folks in, in D.C. And, and their rent must be really good, right, Section? Uh, well, based they, on their hourly rates, I mean, really. Here's what I'll say is, <laughs> is they, they definitely got the Republican right-wing rock star um, who charges up to $1,300 an hour. Uh, it's not clear what taxpayers in uh, Wisconsin are going to pay, but so far they've been given a blank check by the Republican legislators. They've also hired another firm uh, with a former deputy attorney general from Wisconsin. Uh, this guy, uh, Paul Clement, has argued quite a few cases in front of the Supreme Court, but he's also lost a couple of recent big cases. He lost the Obamacare lawsuit um, in which even Chief Justice Roberts said that no Obamacare should go forward uh, in, in the country. Uh, he also lost the Windsor case, which was the first big uh, marriage equality case uh, that overturned uh, the uh, the ban, the national ban. Uh, and so, you know, he's had some big wins. He's had some big losses. Uh, our side uh, has uh, the plaintiffs in Whitford have hired Paul Smith, who has also argued in front of the Supreme Court about a couple of dozen times and has won uh, big cases, including Lawrence v. Texas, which was the case uh, big, first big gay rights case that uh, overturned the uh, sodomy anti-sodomy statute uh, in the state of Texas. And so that was a big case. Uh, so he's got a lot of success as well. And, and we're looking forward to those big guns going at it at the Supreme Court and the uh, verdict in Wisconsin being upheld. So thanks for joining us today, Sachin. My question is, so we win at the Supreme Court. Let's let's be optimistic and we're going to go forward and we're going to win. Uh, what will this mean? What should progressives be doing and what should this mean for Wisconsin and any sort of candidate recruitment or, or what can what can we do right now to prepare for this? Well, I, I think the, the biggest thing is that all the energy that we see coming out of this last election and the growing resistance to the Republicans in, in D.C. and all of the extreme things that they're doing has resulted in there's activism, there's energy. People want to be talking about running for office. And to the extent that in a lot of districts around the state, that would have been a little bit futile. It would have been nice to kind of put up a fight, but but not with a real chance of winning. We think there's going to be a lot more districts around the state in which uh, candidates uh, can have a chance at winning. And so we really want to encourage people to start thinking about it. We don't know what the district lines will look like. And so these are things that, that we'll have to figure out uh, as the year goes on. Um, the other big thing is we're just asking for this process to be open and transparent uh, and engage the public. We think we should demand of Speaker Voss, of the governor, of Senator Fitzgerald, that they should change the way that they did redistricting. They should change the way that they do redistricting this time from the way they did it last time. So a number of federal panels have pointed out the secretive map room across the street and the confidentiality agreements and the fact that you know most districts weren't even known to the legislators until right before they voted on them. It turned out that they'd broken the law, uh, violated the Constitution in a couple of different ways. Uh, and so now those maps have been overturned. And in order for that to not happen again, uh, the best thing to do, the best practice is to have an open and engaging process. Uh, they can easily have public hearings. They can invite Democrats into the room. They can invite Republicans into the room. We can, we can have a fair process. Uh, and then the public can have confidence that the elections that we have are meaningful and that when they vote for their candidates, uh, whether it's Republicans or Democrats or independents, that they're going to have a fair shot at winning in those districts. Can you say a little more about what happens with the very, very good lawyers, uh, the ones that are worth so much money per hour? Uh, I assume their goal will be to find out 
to figure out what the uh, parameters were provided by the court and then to gerrymander almost as much as they did before within those parameters. Is that why you would hire such lawyers or is it only for the appeal? I mean, what, it, what tell us what, so what the role of the lawyers is. I think it's is. a little bit unclear. I think there's yeah. two different things that you've addressed. So one is they want to overturn the verdict, right? They right. want a majority of the Supreme Court to come back and say, no, you don't have to redraw these maps. And that's their first goal. Uh, we think that we are more likely to win than they are. Uh, we want the Supreme Court to affirm a lower court order. Uh, the other thing they might want to do short term is try to stop the process of redrawing. In other words, right now, the legislature is under an order to redraw the maps by November of this year, and uh, they want that order to be stayed so they don't have to redraw the maps. So those are the two things that I think those lawyers are going to look at. Um, now, if they don't get that, do if, they, are if they, they don't then get involved that, in redrawing them? Yeah, and so yeah. here, this is, I think, an important point to point out. So we don't, it's not clear whether we'll have totally fair maps, right? So we didn't say to the, the court, you need to require a map with a 0% efficiency gap. In other words, completely treating Republicans and Democrats equally. What we said is that there should be a threshold so that the bias in the map isn't extreme. And that threshold we proposed at 7%, a 7% bias. Um, and so they could come back with a map legally that has a 6% bias, uh, and it would still be found constitutional. Um, and we think that, that it's just impossible to, to, to have a map drawing process that has 0% bias in it. It's just that that's too hard to do. In fact, even our demonstration map had a 2% Republican bias. We think they should minimize it, but it is unlikely that the court is going to say that they have to get it as close to zero as possible. I think what the court is likely to say is, uh, is to, to have that threshold fall under a certain limit. Now, if they were honest and fair and people of goodwill, then they would strive for a totally fair map because they would want the, the maps to reflect districts that truly represent the will of the people. I don't know that we can expect that amount of goodwill from the Republican majority these days. Suchin, no. Jorna, stop it. Suchin, have you looked Sorry. at the Iowa maps? They're boring to look at. They're not like all filled with cool looking squiggly colors. And they're like, our maps have artistic value to them <laughs> that I don't is believe you're fully appreciating. Where those Iowa maps, I look at them, they're pretty like the districts are like boxes or squares and kind Iowa of boring. So it's a boring map. I yeah. want this artistic, colorful map. I, well, look, it's a good point, me? and gerrymandering has often been kind of seen by, like, do you have non-contiguous maps? Do you have non-compact maps that have funny lines? What I will say, though, is this, is we, we care about a lot of things in redistricting. We don't just care that it's not partisan. We also care that communities of interest are kept together. We also care that uh, minority voting rights are, are protected. And so we're not always for the prettiest-shaped district. Sometimes a prettily shaped district can actually have a lot of, of bias in it. We want the math to work the best. And so so some of that oh. district might be, you, you know, in order to assure uh, the representation of Latinos or African Americans, you have to have a funny shaped district. Or in order to follow a natural boundary like a river, or in order to keep um, two cities that have always been together, like Nina and Menasha together, then you have to have a little bit of a different shape. So I don't want people to get stuck on the shape. I want people to be stuck on the fairness of the districts, and that's really what we want to focus fairness. on. Fairness. fairness. Uh, so what you're saying is that I can't, <laughs> I could have a map drawn with all of my friends in it somehow. So, you know, you're talking about communities of interest, Sachin. Well, look, we, we do think, and I say this in my my, my long-form presentation, uh, that we want uh, that we want neighbors to be voting for the same people as their neighbors. You're, you usually 
should have the person across the street in the same district with you and the person 200 miles away not in the same district with you. That would be normal. Now, obviously, the districts get bigger, the more rural the area. But we, we, we do want to keep districts as compact as possible while adhering to the traditional criteria for what, what fairness looks like. Well, we really appreciate that you took the time to come on and talk about this. I think one of the important things going forward is how do we open up this process, right? How do we make this much more public, get people really focusing on it and making sure that it can't be as closed uh, as it was certainly in the previous process? We'll have Senator Hansen on following you to talk about actual legislation that would create an entirely different process and hopefully uh, result in something much closer to what uh, the lawsuit certainly fought for. But um, so we really appreciate you taking the time to come on and enlighten our listeners. And uh, we'll probably have you on again as this moves uh, through the courts. Thanks for having me. I I look forward to not only hearing the podcast, but hearing these interviews on uh, uh, maybe on the radio uh, on the weekends. I think you're going to talk about that later. Uh, And we also uh, want you to check out the website at fairelectionsproject.org and look up the Fair Elections Project on Facebook and Twitter to stay informed. Excellent. Thanks a lot, Sachin. Thank you. So we really appreciate uh, Sachin Chetta giving us an update on where the lawsuit's at, but uh, you never know what's going to happen with a lawsuit. But the one thing we are in charge of is what we want to be focusing on and what we want to prioritize going forward. And for that, um, we are really happy to have another guest, and that is Senator Dave Hansen, who has introduced a Senate bill uh, that will actually address our redistricting and move towards something much closer uh, like Iowa. But uh, we'll have Senator Hansen uh, tell us more about that. Senator Hansen, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. So we're really thrilled that you're uh, getting out and moving on this, uh, this really important uh, legislation. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about what your legislation does and why it's so important? Well, what we're trying to do, and I actually brought this out in 2012, I believe, after the last redistricting, which proved to be very successful uh, for the Republicans, done outside the Capitol uh, with state computers and state employees with no transparency at all. So I introduced this, and the state senator from my area said, well, it's too soon. Now, many years later, um, it might be too late for them because we have proposed something modeled after the Iowa uh, redistricting plan that has worked really well, hasn't cost a lot of money. Uh, in Wisconsin, it was $2 million. And it, it's a process that we think really should happen. And uh, we're modeling it after the Iowa uh, redistricting plan. Um, it's a little bit different. Uh, their legislative service agency draws their maps. In our case, we're asking the Legislative Reference Bureau. But the key thing is it's nonpartisan rather than political, and that's what we're trying to push for. Yeah, hi, Dave. Uh, and thanks for being a member of the co-op um, up in Northeast Wisconsin, which is growing in leaps and bounds, led by uh, Rebecca Durain, uh, uh, our organizer up there. And we know how, what a critical area of the state this is and how well you've done despite all the gerrymandering, showing you can run on a strong progressive agenda and do very well in elections. But obviously you're concerned about uh, the composition of the legislature being rigged against uh, against you and everything you want to do in government. And so can you talk a little bit about, uh, you know, ger- gerrymandering and, this, and the way these districts have been drawn? Because it's gotten to a, such a scientific level now. It's not some of the ham-handed stuff you saw originally in the early 19th century. They've literally created a situation where it's virtually impossible for the Democrats ever to control the, sta- uh, the state assembly, for example. Yeah, they set themselves. 
themselves up for the next 10 years when they pass this redistricting. That's why, to me, it's totally unconstitutional. In a state that's purple to blue to red, right in the middle, 64-35 in the Assembly and 2013 in the State Senate, tells me that uh, they use the mathematical formula to their advantage, and for one reason, one reason only, to keep themselves in power. So that's what we're fighting against, but we are not that kind of state. We're not that kind of red state. And what comes down to then, you've got legislators that aren't concerned <clears throat> about a tough vote. They'll take the vote because they're in a district that's so safe. So thanks so much for joining us, Senator. This is Jorna. Um, one of the things that has struck me about not only this lawsuit and the legislation is that it's not just happening in Wisconsin, but it's happening in other places around the country as well. And pieces of model legislation such as this would really level the playing field for these elections, because let's be honest, it's not just Republicans who have been gerrymandering districts around the country. Um, so I don't know if you could talk a little bit about that. You know, there are Democratic uh, states that have taken advantage of it as well. And I'm just saying make it fair and balanced for everybody, Republican, Democrat, or whatever. We never had the opportunity really to do it. We never took that opportunity. And now the mathematical formula is so great that you could manipulate and take away one person, one vote. It is removing democracy where you can go to the polling place and know that your vote's not really going to count because the majority in that particular district is just so heavily one party or the other. Exactly. So that would lead me to believe that Republicans in Wisconsin would want to set a good example for their colleagues in other states, right? And they would want to sign on to your legislation right away. Well, I can tell you this. They could save a lot of money by not hiring high price lawyers by passing SB 13 and Assembly Bill 44. Yet we have no, excuse me, one Republican that has signed on. I think Representative Novak, I believe, in the Assembly oh, has right. signed on. But, you know, I've been pushing this forever, and it's about fairness and balance, and it's not about hiring high-priced lawyers to beat a law that is obviously, obviously unconstitutional. And the important thing that we added, as Iowa added, is transparency. Once the, the lines are drawn, you have transparency where you've got to go out and have three public hearings on the bill, only one of which can be held in Madison, and one hearing obviously would have to be in the northern part of the state, which makes sense. Last time we had no input on it at all. We got the maps, and heck, I didn't know if I was in a district or not, um, but it was like we had no participation, and the Republicans had to sign agreements, uh, keep their mouth shut as to what they had seen. So you mentioned uh, you already have one Republican. I think that's actually really uh, big news. And I think he may have been on it last time. I'm not sure. Oh, okay, that's great. Well, uh, it's good Maybe to know. Maybe he should lead. <laughs> yep, a absolutely. And it seems like um, now is the time, right, for people to be contacting their state legislator, both Senate uh, for SB 13, and then you mentioned if it's a uh, the Assembly Bill is Assembly Bill 44, correct? That's correct. And so now would be the time to be calling them. It's it's circulating for co-sponsorship, correct, still? Right. We, actually, I think we closed ours, and we got every Democrat on it. And uh, so the Assembly, I don't know if Representative Brewick has actually presented it, but he will be the one leading on that. And, and I wanted to say, too, we had a meeting with the Democratic Party recently, and uh, we usually have about 20 people. This time we had 108. Well, to hear Kevin speak, but uh, it, it's... Uh, it's a different day, and if just those 108 would call Senator Coles and the rest in northeastern Wisconsin and say, hey, it's time we do this fair, and it's about balance in government and not about one-party power, and uh, where people aren't held accountable because their districts are so one party or the other. 
Yeah, no, we, I, I, I sense the same thing you sensed at that meeting. I see it on social media. Uh, we've been working and caring about redistricting for a number of years, and you know I'll post stuff on social media, and it'll it'll get shared a little bit. But this recent uh, wave, particularly around your bill in particular, just very very popular on social media. Tremendous amount of sharing, and I just think people have finally come around understanding that the gerrymandering is so bad that they they just that there is no real legitimate competition uh, anymore in a lot of these uh, legislative seats. So they've seen what's happened in North Carolina and other states, and going back quite a few years, what Texas tried to pull, pull with gerrymandering. So it's time we move ahead, and it's time everybody reach out to these Republican legislators and let them know they don't have to buy lawyers at high dollars per hour. They can pass SB 13 and Assembly Bill 44, and we can move our state ahead and make it fair again. It's about fairness and balance and making one person, one vote, and democracy uh, existing in our state. Yeah, I agree about the high-priced lawyers that are, I mean, these are really high-priced lawyers. They must be really good, you know, for $800 an hour, what what brilliance you must get uh, in rigging the election system. But I agree with you totally that the public is getting that this is a rigging, that this is undemocratic. And what's great about you leading on this is, is that the only way to move an issue with a recalcitrant legislature, legge majority that actually thinks it benefits from this, is to make them take these votes and make these to make them take these positions. If we're quiet and they're not forced to debate it, they're not uh, forced to vote on it, uh, then they can just go go along their merry way rigging the system. And continually passing bad legislation, that's the most difficult thing, being in a minority like we are. Good ideas like this bill and other good ideas that we have not even being considered and bringing anti-labor, anti-middle uh, class, and, and not doing a whole lot for the poor either. So I think this could help fix it. So I'm just asking everybody out there, just you know, really call a lot and email a lot and write letters, and maybe they'll even pick up the phone. Well, Senator, we really appreciate you leading on this bill and also leading by being a member of the cooperative uh, in northeastern Wisconsin and taking the time today to join us and let our members know about this important legislation. Thank you very much, and we must all fight with this together. All right, bravo. Have a, have, have a great weekend. You too. Thank you. Thank you. So before we go this week, though, we must talk about Paul Ryan. Paul Ryan never seems to leave the news. Um Robert, I know you wrote an op-ed, but before we get to your op-ed about Ryan on healthcare, Jorna, I know uh, you had some things you wanted to mention about Mr. Ryan and this, his activities this week. Well, my my dear friend, the speaker, uh, my favorite, not Paul Nalen, Paul Ryan, has been encouraging his members to increase security at their offices and their town halls because of those pesky paid protesters that but are disrupting were, everything. I thought there were snowflakes. They are snowflakes. <laughs> they are indeed snowflakes. But uh, so so there's been a been a request to increase security to you know keep the unwanted voices out of any sort of public dialogue, of course. Um, but funny thing is that these aren't paid protesters. These are people who just oppose Paul Ryan's. Um, policies and oppose the Trump agenda and administration. You know, over 600 people showed up in Janesville to protest the speaker last weekend, another 300 a couple days later. You know, things like that demonstrate that folks in the district are going to hold Paul Ryan accountable for the things that he's saying. And it will be interesting to see how the pressure keeps up and whether or not he cracks under it. Well, one of the things, Jorna, that he even said again this week, I believe on Tuesday, 
uh, when he was trying to avoid having to directly talk about what Donald Trump was up to. Uh, He started lashing out again at the Affordable Care Act, uh, more lies, talking about how it was destroying and cratering the healthcare economy, which has been politifact many times on Robert. But this uh, gets us to your op-ed this week about really what Paul Ryan and the uh, and the Republicans are doing in terms of the bait and switch on healthcare. And again, he's at it again, promising that people are going to have healthcare better than what they have now, which is completely not possible in their plan. Well, it's a bait and switch in that, and it goes beyond healthcare, but healthcare is the biggest example now that they are promising progressive outcomes that we have promised for years, like covering everyone, and then turning around and doing the opposite, forcing 30 million people off healthcare, setting their sights on Medicaid and Medicare. And the only way to understand it really is that they've done their opinion polling. They've decided they won't win if they don't if they don't do this. And they ran like progressives on healthcare in this election, uh, which was shocking. I mean, Paul. I mean, Ron Johnson was running testimonials from people about yeah. who couldn't afford their healthcare that look at progressive ads from ten years ago. Uh, and Donald Trump says we'll cover everybody with no plan to do so. Though now he's delaying to eighteen, so he's or or floating that anyway on O'Reilly. So they're feeling a lot of pressure from the movement as well. But this is really a test of democracy. Can they get away with a bait and switch where they do this kind of damage and then stand away from the bomb going off and say it wasn't us? Uh, If they can do that, then there is no government by consent of the governed. You can run one way, do the opposite, and the public doesn't know. And so this is a threat to democracy. And the fundamental thing, and I will have a link to the op-ed in the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, is that their philosophy of government makes it impossible for them to do this. They they cannot do these promises. It's not an accident. There's no replacement plan. There's no secret plan because there can't be. And furthermore, what they do when they repeal it, which they've started doing with this budget resolution, they give an average $195,000 a year tax cut to the top 0.1%. And that's what this is about. This is about giving them yet another tax cut and getting rid of all the money to pay for replacement, even if they believed in one, which they don't. And so this is a real challenge to democracy. They are in a bit of disarray now because they're shocked by the public furor that's been raised, but we got to keep the pressure on. And so I'd be interested in any podcast listener's reaction to the op-ed. Uh, Brian, please let me know. Shoot me an email. Brian, I will we'll provide the link in the with the podcast. So, Robert, uh, before we go, what are you doing this weekend? Well, I probably should study the state employee health plan, <laughs> yeah, which Walker is destroying and claiming to save $60 million with, which even... John Niger and Robin Voss have, have, are doubtful about in the media right away. Uh, but I am going to Chicago. We'll see my mother, uh, who's still recovering from hip replacement surgery, and then go to a major conference on decarceration. In other words, taking on mass incarceration. You know, Robert, I, I wanted to talk about that topic today, but there's so many things. It's almost impossible now just to have a weekly podcast. We may have to Maybe we should go daily, Robert. What do you think about that? I don't, Jorna, you, you game for that? Oh, negative. Negative. Oh, okay. Ghost Rider. That Damn it, Nat. Come on, Jorna. Uh, so this weekend, some friends and I are actually going up to scenic Door County to uh, have a weekend away. But they are political friends, so inevitably the conversation will be all politics. Oh, well, hopefully you get out and do some And cross- beer. Maybe. Uh-huh. And wine. Well, that, that sounds good. So with that, um, we want to challenge our podcast listeners uh, this week to, if you want to hear us on 1510, why don't you let them know that we should be on on the weekend. Give them a call. Let them know we, that you would love to hear the podcast on 1510 this weekend. Oh, yeah, Robert. Oh, you're back. I thought you were on furlough. No, no, you can't. 
1510 gets you back to the mic. No, if you're if you're interested, they have slots open, and we actually think uh, uh, we might be able to provide some content for them. You know, Jorna, and when you're the, not the indie the music, rock, the indie Wildridge, rock show Jorna with Taylor Brian show. Wildridge. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. We'll have to see. But anyways, folks, uh, thanks a lot. We hope to see you all again next week. Before we go, though, we want to thank Brian Wildridge, as always, for making the podcast happen. We want to thank our guests, which include Beth Ludeman, uh, organizing Cooperative Steering Committee member Suchin Chetta for enlightening us on the latest with the redistricting lawsuit and Senator Dave Hansen for leading the way as to where we need to go on redistricting. So with that, we'll see you all next week here at the Battleground, Wisconsin.